Thanks for listening to the Downtown Community Church Podcast. My name is William and I'm the Executive Director here at DCC. DCC is located in downtown Tallahassee and our heart is to reach the city through loving God, making disciples, and being great neighbors. We recently launched a new building campaign called Building Opportunities. Over the years, we've seen God do some incredible things and we're excited about this next step we're taking as a church. To learn more about the building campaign and to see how you can be a part, visit downtowncommunitychurch.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's sermon. But I want to give you a couple updates. If you're new to DCC, then perhaps this is new information. But if you've been here a while, um, then this is uh, kind of old information for you or information that you, that you know about that I'm just going to update you on. Um, our church over the last probably 18 months has had an incredible season of growth. Um, we went for the first couple years, first two or three years as a church, and many of you know this, we kind of went through an identity crisis of saying, who are we, what are we doing, who are we serving, how are we helping, those types of things. About the time that we came into this building, um, we realized who we were, that God had called us to, to engage whoever, to reach whoever, to bring whoever, to send whoever out that showed up here on a Sunday or showed up in groups on a, on a, on a you know, Monday through Thursday type of basis. And then outside of that, um, to serve the people in our community, and specifically as a church as a whole, um, to have an emphasis on the marginalized and the communities. And so as we did that and lived into that calling, um, we just had, have had an incredible season of growth. We went from around, you know, maybe 100 people uh, about, you know, coming up on two years ago, about a year and a half ago, um, to, you know, this past semester, as many of you knew, you know, we kind of outgrew our two services and our three services, and then we did something that everybody said was a bad idea, which honestly probably was a bad idea. We went to four services, um, and we went from about 100 to about 450 people in a, in, in a number of months, and so with that, we launched a brand new building campaign. And we haven't had a lot to report um, because we have a lady who is our future landlord um, who is, let's, let's say, um, incredibly nice woman and she doesn't lack money, okay? So she just went in the month of May um, on a trip around the world um, and she's, you know, really nice and, and very gracious and all those types of things. But she just decided, you know what, we're just going to go on a trip around the world. And this is after going to Utah twice, going to the Bahamas for fly fishing, and then coming back. And that was all in April. And then May, I'm just going to take off. So that's our landlord. So we kind of put everything on pause for the month of May and restarted in June. Now in June, um, we came off of a meeting with the city, with the architects, with the fire, with the electrical. I mean, everybody and anybody who's, you know, could ever say no, it was in this meeting, kind of in a big room together, um, hashing out the details and so we're hoping in the next um, few weeks to have for you a, a finalized set of floor plans um, or at least a really 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 close rough draft we're hoping within the next um, two to four weeks to be able to submit all of our plans to the city uh, and we're hoping that that'll take about 30 days and I, I, I say this hesitantly because if you ever done any kind of construction project you know it takes about 10 times longer than you initially want it to take um, and so we're going to submit it to the city the city should take about 30 days to respond hopefully they're going to say yes because we have had 55 meetings it feels like with them um, but hopefully they'll say yes and then we can get construction started but the other thing I wanted to update you on is that we at the same time have a building campaign going on to raise funds to renovate this building if you know much about again about this building how we did it is we rent it but we paid for all the upgrades we paid for all the updates we paid for all the renovations so our our, our actual monthly rent could be so inexpensive it propped us up in a position for ministry where we could leverage every dollar possible to go towards ministry. So when you give, we want you to know, we have just a, a disproportionate number of dollars or cents per dollar that goes directly towards ministry because of the financial position that the leaders of this church, you know, thankfully have, have helped us to, to come up under. 
So as we're going through this new thing, um, it's the same type of deal. Where she's actually matching some capital with us, so that's kind of the proposal that's on the table. And as we go towards that, we knew we needed to raise some money. And if you know anything about how our church raises money, we are not great at it, just to let you know. Somehow God continually provides, and we continually are insufficient. It's kind of like in our weakness, this strength is made perfect. There perhaps is no greater example of that than our church, who has a bunch of young people who communally don't make a ton of money, but God just continually provides and provides and provides and provides. And so we launched a building campaign. Many of you gave it first. We haven't been able to push a ton because we're kind of saying, you know, everybody's saying, where are we? What's the update? And it's kind of like, we're at the same place. You know, it's kind of like if you ever watch a soap opera, you walk away from about a month and a half and you come back and it's like, yeah, it's the exact same thing. You know, I'm not honestly personally a, uh, a soap opera aficionado, but you know, from, from what I hear. So anyways, so all that to say, um, we had an incredible thing happen this week, and we've, you know, we've, we've been collecting a little bit by a little bit by a little bit by a little bit, and if you were here when, you, uh, when we launched the very first video to say, hey, you know, X amount of people give this much, and X amount of people give that much, and I said at the beginning, you know, you know, you know we need one person to, to, gosh, I can't remember what it was, we need one person to give, you know, $10,000, and we're praying that one person, you know, just gives above and beyond, that, that somebody, you know, gives just, just an extraordinary amount of money, you know, maybe 20, maybe, you know, $25,000, let me, let me just tell you something that happened this week, a guy who has never been to church before at DCC, who I have never had a personal conversation with, gave a gift this week. Again, never been to church, never been to the place. He's actually, I think, walked in the building one time. Gave a gift of over $20,000 to our building fund just because he heard of what God's doing here. So we want to celebrate that. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things where like, you hear about it and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, like, that's not real life. Like, this is over, like, well over double the biggest gift that we've ever had in the history of DCC. And it's just a guy who honestly wants no credit for it, but basically said, hey, what I have, this money, I've been saving aside, I've been setting aside, I've been kind of looking around for a church to, to, to give this to. And honestly, this isn't me doing something extraordinary. This is just me giving God what's already God. And so we just absolutely love that heart of generosity. And I want to encourage you with that to say, hey, with this whole thing, God is with us, God is for us, God is providing for us as he always has as we live in obedience to what he's called us to do. So I just want you to be encouraged by that, and as we go forward, I want you to just be encouraged by the fact that God continually provides in our insufficiency. Um, so I just wanted to encourage you, because I, I saw that and I'm like, wait, did he put the comma in the wrong place? You know what I mean? Is that, is that real life right there? So anyway, it's just, just an incredible thing. So... Um, Last thing I want to say before we actually get into the sermon this morning, this sermon has a good amount of intro on the front end. Last thing I want to say is this. Um, I know in a room this size, you know, we're celebrating Father's Day, and, and many of us, you know, have had fantastic fathers, but for many of us, Father's Day is not a, a pleasant thing. Perhaps you had a father that was very, uh, you know, for whatever reason, not the ideal father. Perhaps you have a father who, for the first time ever, um, isn't here with us today on planet earth. Perhaps you have a father who for many, many years has not been here with us on planet earth. And so um, we just want to say, you know, we love you and we care about you. We're praying for you today. We know on a day like today, it's an incredible celebration. Um, and like Grant said, you know, many of our fathers, we would, you know, go to bat for and say, my dad can beat up your dad. And if you've ever met Grant's dad, you know, he was probably wrong in that conversation. But, you know, we know that for many of you, it, it's, it's a very difficult day. And so we just want you to know from, from DCC, from your church family, from your community, um, we love you. We are praying for you. If there's anything that we can do, if you want to talk after the service, if you want to be prayed for after the service, we got people out here who are going to be praying for you. If there's anything that we can do to help you or serve you today, because we know today's not always the easiest day, then we would absolutely love to do whatever we can do for that. So let me pray for us as we join in this time together, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for sending your Son, our Savior, Jesus, 
to the earth. Because you, our Heavenly Father, gave us the greatest gift the world has ever seen. When you came, dwelt among us, when you saw our sinfulness did not count it against us, but took the weight of our sin square on your shoulders as you died on the cross. And we are so thankful for that gift that you, our Heavenly Father, gave us this Father's Day. Please, 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 for anyone and everyone who this day is not a joyous occasion, this day is a day of extraordinary difficulty, would you give us the strength? Would you give us the courage? Would you give us the love? Would you give us the protection? Would you give us the hope to know that no matter what our earthly father situation is, we always, always, always have a heavenly father that is always there and always good and always loving. So God, as we launch into this time, going into your word together, would you please speak to us? Regardless of where we are, perhaps for some of us, we walked in, it's the very first time we've walked into a church building like this. Not even sure if you exist, not even sure if you're around. Or for some of us, we've walked in a church building like this a hundred, maybe a thousand times before. God, would you make today individual, relevant, and fresh for each one of us, according to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. All right, so we're in this book called Nehemiah, and I know Nehemiah is an Old Testament book, which some of us, you know, don't really engage with a ton. And Nehemiah, again, we've t- said this the last few times, Nehemiah is not an extraordinarily popular book. It's never referred to in the New Testament. In fact, outside of the book of Nehemiah, it's not very much referred to at all. But Nehemiah is the story of a guy who faced insurmountable odds. Nehemiah is the story of a guy who had a calling from God. And based on this calling from God, did something incredible for the kingdom of God. Now, as Nehemiah did this, essentially what his calling was was to go to Jerusalem, which had kind of been abandoned, which had really been destroyed, which had been completely broken down, and to go and rebuild the wall. And there isn't anything explicitly spiritual about a wall, but what was spiritual was the implications of the wall. What was spiritual was that people looked at a city, and they correlated the city with their God. And people were laughing at the, what they considered the one true, what we consider the one true living God because of the state of the city, but no one rebuilt a city with really, really bad or really, really broken down walls because anybody could waltz in at any time and take anything they wanted to, essentially. And so God calls Nehemiah to go build this city. Now, a couple things you need to know before we go in this morning. Number one, Nehemiah was not a licensed contractor. Nehemiah, before he's doing this, is just sitting there serving the king, serving his wine. Now, you talk about a cush job. You're with the, you know, the, the most important guy in the world, and all you do all day is taste his wine. So you're thinking like the most incredible, if you're like a bourbon drinker, which we're not condoning or promoting, but if you're like a bourbon drinker, you know, it's like the, you, know, you, just, you taste the president's Pappy Van Winkle. If you're like a wine drinker, you know, it's like the president's Chardonnay. If you're you know, a college student, it's like you know, you're tasting your guy's Natty Light or something just terribly disgusting. Or if you're a wine drinker, it's like you're drinking Dasani, okay? So wherever you are and whatever your convictions are, you know, God bless you, but you're just sitting there hanging out with the most powerful guy, tasting whatever it is that you taste that he drinks. And as he does this, God calls him to go build, so he doesn't necessarily come with the skill set as he's going into this calling. On top of that, he doesn't necessarily have the resources. He's going to build this wall, and as we're going to find out, the wall has tons of rubble around it, tons of destruction around it, tons of stuff that needs to be cleared away. On top of that, Nehemiah is going to face extraordinary adversity. And here's why all of that is relevant. God has placed a call, we believe, 
is God has placed a call on each one of our lives, but very few of us feel equipped for the call of God on our lives. God perhaps has called you to minister to your family. God perhaps has called you to minister at your work. God perhaps has called you to minister at your school. God perhaps has called you to minister in your neighborhood. God perhaps has called you to serve the poor. God perhaps has called you to serve the people in government where you work. But wherever it is, each of us, we believe, have a calling from God on our lives. And the reality is few of us feel equipped, feel trained, and honestly, feel spiritual enough to fulfill that calling. Yet God has still called And so as we're traveling through the book of Nehemiah, our hope is to give you the tools to realize how to combat the things that you come up against as you live into the calling of God on your life. Because here's the reality. You have no clue, and I have no clue, the implications of the call of God on our lives. You have no clue, and I have no clue, the implication of the calling of God on our lives. Nehemiah, at the beginning of this, had no clue that God had called him to build a wall around the city. And this is the city which a few hundred years later, would there be a guy named Jesus who just outside of these walls would be hung on a Roman cross and change the history of the world. And no one, especially not Nehemiah, knew that was coming. All he knew was that he had a calling. And you have no clue the implications. You have no clue the power. You have no clue what God wants to do in and through you as you're obedient to his call on your life. But if you're like Nehemiah and Nehemiah is like us, you feel this lack of a sense of you don't have the right tools. You're a little bit too sinful. In fact, for many of us, I'm a lot too sinful. I don't have the training, I don't have the capacity. So as we launch into chapter 4, Nehemiah is going to face some adversity. What I love about this morning is Nehemiah is going to face adversity, but what Nehemiah does, the principle that basically Nehemiah puts into place, just transcends all in any situations that we go through in life. To say, this then is how you ought to live, because Nehemiah is beginning to go through some incredible adversity. We said this, any calling from God, any calling from God, will face extraordinary adversity. Any calling from God will face extraordinary adversity. You know, uh, Paul said it to Timothy in this way. He said, hey, anybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face persecution of many kinds. You will, as a Christian, go through oftentimes hell on earth as you live into God's calling for your life. But what Nehemiah does in light of this is extraordinary. So if you've got your Bible, you can open up Nehemiah chapter 4. Read a couple verses that we read a couple weeks ago, and then we're going to continue on. So there's just two dudes named Sambalot and Tobiah. And they're kind of the haters of the entire group. They're saying, you know, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And Nehemiah kind of fights them off. In verse 7, we'll start out. When Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause confusion to it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, here's kind of the, the overarching statement, or overarching idea for this. Nehemiah balances spiritual and practical. 
Nehemiah does an incredible job of balancing spiritual and practical. The kind of the take home for this entire message, in case you know you're here and you're thinking about game seven of the finals and is LeBron going to be able to do it again? And praise God, we hope he will. You know, what's going to happen? Is Steph Curry going to act like a child again? Absolutely. He is a child. He looks like a child. But if you're looking for like the bottom line of this entire thing, it's simple. It's that Nehemiah was deeply spiritual and deeply practical. He was deeply spiritual and deeply practical at the same time. And oftentimes, we view spirituality and practicality diametrically opposed to one another. But biblically, they are oftentimes one and the same. That Nehemiah sees what's happening, sees these people, these governors from these outside neighboring regions saying, we are going to fight because we don't like that the walls of Jerusalem are going back, so we are going to go and physically oppose them. And Nehemiah doesn't simply say, well, we're just going to bow up and fight. He doesn't simply say, we're just going to go in a hole and pray. He says, we are going to do both. That the spiritual life lived for God, living into the calling of God, is both spiritual and practical as they collide together. So here's how the story begins to unfold. In Judah, it was said, now this is kind of the people of God, by the way, this is what's happening kind of inside the wall. This is the internal conflict. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble, and by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. In other words, so the people, kind of the internal turmoil that's going to happen. We're back next week, we're going to talk a ton about internal turmoil. But the internal conflict at this point is the people looking at it and saying, Nehemiah, we can't build this wall. I mean, look, there's, there's rubble, there's stuff everywhere. I mean, everywhere we go, there, there's, just, there, there's just so much more to clean out than there is to build up. And, and we can't do this by ourselves. They feel overwhelmed at the task. He said, our strength is failing. Verse 11, and our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Now, it's not only happening from on, on, on the, the, the nations of Israel, the, the city of Jerusalem's front, from internal, externally. Externally, the governors of the outside place are saying, hey, we're going to go in. And it's going to be a secret. And we're going to kill them. Our goal isn't just to thwart their plans. Our, our, our plan is to end their lives. Now, I don't know what adversity you're personally up against as you live into your calling. Perhaps you have people that when you're at your work and you really try to live the life that God's called you to live, you try to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, people are going to talk about you. They're going to call you a weirdo, perhaps. Perhaps they're going to ask why you don't go to certain places and why you do go to certain places. Perhaps they're going to ask, ask why you don't engage in particular conversations. We don't know. But here's... Here's what I'm pretty sure of. You probably aren't facing the same external adversity that Nehemiah is facing. There's a good chance that no one wants to kill you for your calling. And we oftentimes read scripture as it happens in a vacuum. Like it's kind of a, 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 a theory, it's a bit of a fairy tale. But I want you to imagine, what would you do if you were Nehemiah? What would you do if you were Nehemiah and you know the people inside are having just this difficult time because they feel overworked, they feel overlabored, they feel like their strength is failing, and at the same time, you know that the people around you are wanting to kill you. And so Nehemiah sees this, and the trouble gets worse. At that time, verse 12, 
The Jews who lived near them came from all directions, said to us, Ten times. Now, the Jews around them means the people that weren't necessarily living in Jerusalem, but probably in the cities or in the states or in the providences where these particular governors were planning to kill those people. And so they're hearing the word on the street that, hey, something's about to go down. Something's about to go down. They're about to come in. They're about to kill. They're about to destroy. And so ten times they said, you must return to us. In other words, Nehemiah, it's not worth it. They're going to kill you. It's, it's, it's just not worth it to continue. Now, let me, let me just pause and say this. If this is you this morning, and as you're living the life that God's called you to live, and you are facing adversities, which, by the way, if you never face adversities for what God has called you to do, then you're probably doing something wrong. But if you're going through this right now, I just want this to be an encouragement to you, that you aren't the only one who has ever been through this. In fact, Jesus made it very, very, very explicit and very, very direct. He said, the world hates you. Don't worry, they hated me first. And we live in a culture, we live in a world where living to a biblical standard is becoming increasingly, increasingly, increasingly less popular. And we talked about this two weeks ago, that if we are going to be the people of God, the community of God, that isn't a superiority and a judgment statement, it's just a simple idea that we will have to become more resilient than we currently are. Because if we can't stand for Jesus in a culture that promotes the Bible Belt, what happens when the Bible Belt no longer becomes the Bible Belt. And speaking into this, Nehemiah is at the center, perhaps the epicenter of their day of adversity against the plan and the will of God as he's facing both internal and external opposition. So this is what he does. So, in the lowest parts of the wall, in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So Nehemiah essentially says, okay, I'm going to find the most susceptible places. The most susceptible places are the places where the wall is lowest, where they haven't built it up because it's a lot more difficult to breach a high wall than it is a low wall. I don't know if you've ever done that when you were a kid. You try to climb a fence, and you've got some fences that are right here, and you just kind of jump them in one swoop. And there's some fences that are like super high, and you look and you're saying... We're not going to the baseball field today, fellas. It's just too high of a fence to jump to go to play on the field. But they're looking at this fence and they're saying, okay, we're going to guard the most susceptible places. So the places where the wall is the lowest, we're going to place guards. The places where the wall is the highest, we're just going to kind of let that fly for a little bit. And the places where there is no wall, we're going to especially place people. And on top of that, here's what we're going to do. He says, when our enemies, verse 15, heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plans, in other words, that they had prepared for it, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, verse 16, half of my servants worked on construction, and half held the spears, 
shields, bows, and coats of mail. That's not like, you know, letters to the editor, you know, mail type stuff. That's like, like metal type stuff. So he says, okay, so half the people are, are ready for battle and the other half are building. So we had to basically take what was the whole 100% of the people that were all working, 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 working extraordinarily hard. We know everybody's already tired. We know everyone is already, you know, kind of worn out. But we're going to take our workforce, divide it in half, say half of you guys be ready for war at any and every time, and the other half of you, you guys got to keep working. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. I love that idea. He said, okay, okay. So here's almost like a beautiful picture of how we're going to handle this situation. We are at one point going to be prepared for the practicality of what may or may not happen. But we are going to be prepared. But on the other hand, we are not going to keep working. You see, oftentimes when we face adversity, it's so easy to get caught up in the idea of facing adversity, facing adversity, facing adversity. We forget to do the work of God in our lives. And Nehemiah looks at this and says, okay, so those of you guys who are working, who are carrying the burdens, you're not devoid of this idea of adversity. In fact, I want you to be ready, so I want you to carry a spear with you, but at the same time, I want you to continue the work. I want you to carry a spear with you, and I want you to continue the work. And let me me just say, this ought to be how we live our lives. We ought to live in such a way that we are ready and prepared for anything and everything that comes at us in a practical sense, and at the same time, be fiercely devoted to the call of God on our lives. You might work at a school that you know there is incredible adversity to, in a a dynamic and effective way, loving and ministering to your students. I'm not talking about you go there and just everybody before class, we're having a Bible study, we're having a prayer request time, anybody and everybody with every head bowed and every eyes closed, we start, you know, first period, you know. If you want to accept Jesus, I'm not not talking about that. I'm talking about as you engage in relationships, as you talk to, as you get involved in, perhaps, 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 there's adversity that's going to come as a result of that. And you shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, you should be prepared for that. But you shouldn't get so overwhelmingly concerned with the preparation for the adversity that you forget the work that God's called you to in the first place. It's oftentimes, let me just kind of give you how this, how this may or may not work out in, in normal life, just, you know, teacher life. And I'm not a teacher of sorts, not in the school system. You get it. Anyways, perhaps you're living your life, perhaps you're doing this something that God's called you to do. And you hear from the administration that that's not a particularly smart way to do it. That's not a wise way to do it. You know, you really ought not do it that way because you're going to get hurt, you're going to get burned, and you have teachers around you that are saying, that is dumb. But you know deep down that's the calling of God on your life, and that's in fact why he's placed you in that school. Perhaps you know, maybe you're in a law office, maybe you're in a medical field. Shoot, maybe you're an accountant. Maybe you're a financial planner or you're studying to be a financial planner. And the passion and the burden that God has called you to with your life is to help people put themselves in positive financial situations. And people might tell you along the way, do not get personally involved, do not get personally involved, do not get personally involved. But you know that ministry happens through relationships and that is how God has called you to intervene on behalf of people. And you will face adversity. Perhaps for you it's starting a Bible study. Perhaps for you, it's starting a Bible study at your work. Shoot, perhaps for some of you guys, you're thinking about being a leader in this church. You're thinking about becoming a community group leader in this church. You're thinking about leading a particular ministry area in this church. 
And you know that if you start to live into that, there will be naysayers left and right that are going to say, you are going to do that. And you ought to be prepared for that. But you ought not be consumed by that. So this is how Nehemiah continues to prepare. Verse 19. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. And I love that beautiful statement because Nehemiah, in the midst of this practicality, does not forget that ultimately victory does not rely on me. Victory relies on the Lord and in the Lord. And I'm going to prepare and I'm going to work and I'm going to prepare and I'm going to work. But ultimately, victory is dependent on God. And as much as I'm going to prepare, as much as I'm going to be devoted, that ultimately it's our God who fights for us as we do our part being diligent for God. So we labored at the work, verse 21. And half of them held the spears from, day, from, from break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us day by day and may labor, or by night, I'm sorry, and labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes and each kept weapons at his right hand. In other words, and we were constantly prepared. We were constantly prepared. And Nehemiah, throughout the book, in fact, Nehemiah, what eventually would make him so successful, so faithful, so fruitful, was that Nehemiah constantly was deeply spiritual and deeply practical and did not see those things in opposition to one another. In fact, I heard someone say it this way the other day, and I thought this is just a beautiful way. In fact, this was, this was about a month before we got to this Sunday, about a month ago, and as I heard this person say it, they weren't saying anything that involved with Nehemiah, but this is what they said, and I thought, this, that's the second half of chapter 4. That's the thing. This is the thing that I wish that if you didn't hear anything else, this is the thing that I think, if you don't know how to apply anything else, this is the thing. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, the most spiritual thing you can do is the most practical thing you can do. Oftentimes, the most spiritual thing that you can do is the most practical thing that you can do. And Nehemiah looks at the situation of the wall and realizes that, hey, there is a spiritual battle going on absolutely. And I'm going to be fiercely devoted to God through prayer and through the process know that victory lies within him. It's not ultimately dependent on me. But at the same time, I am going to take practical steps to make sure that I am ready for anything and everything. That the most spiritual thing you can do is oftentimes the most practical thing you can do. This is real life, okay? Perhaps for you, you are having a problem that you know the level of holiness that God has called you to live. You know for you that one of your issues is that you have a tendency, maybe, who knows, you have a tendency to drink too much. You have a tendency to party too much, whatever it is. Let me, let me just tell you. The most spiritual thing you can do is not decide, you know what, I'm going to go to the bar where everyone else is getting hammered and I'm just going to withstand temptation because I am such a spiritual person. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't go there. God, please don't hear me say that. If that's not your issue, if that's not your struggle, and God's called you to minister in that environment, 
Bless you. Be holy in your pursuit of that. But if that's your struggle, if that's your issue, it's stupid to struggle with alcoholism and go and sit in a bar day after day after day after day. That's not spiritual. That's dumb. If your problem, if your problem is that you got a boyfriend, you got a girlfriend, you're going too far, you know, physically, and you wish you weren't going that far, for you to say, you know what? I heard this, there's sweet new, you know, I know it's, I know it's 11 o'clock at night, and I know, you know, whatever, and, you know, nobody's home, but, but hey, I saw this awesome show on Netflix, and I really want to check out Bloodline, so would you come over, you know, and we're not going to do anything, we're going to, in fact, let, let, we're going to start our time together by praying together, because that's going to, you know, abrupt any type of sort of, you know, the devil. We're just going to pray, you know, together, and say, God, please don't let us go do anything. Meanwhile, you know, who knows what else is happening. Perhaps the smartest thing for you to do is set parameters around your life and your relationship that says, hey, we aren't going to hang out with each other alone past this time of night. We're not going to you know, go past X or Y physically, and if we do, then we're going to take a break for a little while. Perhaps break up completely. Sounds crazy. It also sounds practical. Perhaps for you, you're having trouble getting in God's Word. And you pray, God, give me the discipline. God, give me the discipline. God, give me the discipline. <laughs> I feel like sometimes when we pray for that over and over and over and over again, God's saying, set your alarm, set your alarm, set your alarm. It's not always super spiritual. It's not all this holiness of God intervention through the angels that all of a sudden supernaturally. Sometimes it's as simple as you or I taking out our smartphone and setting an alarm for 15 minutes earlier than we normally get up. God forbid we lose 15 minutes of sleep. For many of us, let's be honest. The reason that we don't live into the calling of God on our lives, the reason that we face this adversity and we have cyclical problems of not living into perhaps the holiness, perhaps the calling, perhaps the obedience, it's not because God's not real. It's because we know the practical steps that he's called us to do. He's called us to live into. He's called us to implement. And we want something super spiritual and supernatural. And not practical. And the point of this, just be clear, is not to say you're a bad person. It's not to say you're so lazy. It's not to say you're so dumb. The point of this is to say, hey, hey, for many of us, let's be honest. For many of us, the steps to living into the next step of God's calling in our life the step that God has called you towards the next step of, obe of obedience, the, the step that God's called you to the next step of ministry, the step that God's called you to the next step of your calling, oftentimes isn't this inexplicably difficult thing. It's as simple as setting an alarm. It's as simple as deciding beforehand that I'm going to get accountability for this particular area of my life. It's deciding beforehand that when I get that email, I know it's coming and I'm going to be prepared for it. And I'm just mentally deciding that that's not that important to me. That what's important to me is the calling of God on my life. It's oftentimes not incredibly complex and it's not oftentimes not incredibly spiritual. That oftentimes, the most spiritual thing that you can do is the most practical thing that you can do. And here's, here's the beautiful part of the entire thing, of the entire process, is that God 
has called you. God has called you to do something extraordinary and incredible for the kingdom of God. That you by God himself, by God our heavenly Father, have been invited to be a participant in the story of God. You have been given a role to play. You have been given an opportunity to further the story, to further the kingdom. That since Jesus died for the sin of the world on the cross, God has been raising up people after people, generation after generation, person after person, to pursue his name, to pursue his glory, and to live into their individual calling. And you have been called by the creator of the universe to make a significant difference here on planet Earth. So let me end by saying this. What's the one practical thing that you know that God is calling you to do that perhaps you have been avoiding for a long time? What's the one practical thing? I don't want to start with like 15 things. Some of us have 15 things. I want to start with 10 things. Some of us have 10 things. What's the one thing? What's the one thing that you know God has been calling you to that there is an easy and a practical step to put into place. But you have been avoiding. That God has called you to something incredible. And God wants to use you in ways that are dynamic. But we've been hesitant to implement, perhaps, these incredibly practical steps. Because here's, here, here's where all this matters. At the end of the day, there's a lost in a hurting, and a broken world. There's people who we believe, some of us who we believe, that Jesus came. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. That we realize that we're sinful people, we realize we're unholy people, and in the light of that, he died for us. And he has called us to further that story in your obedience, your participation, your spirituality and practicality matters. And let me just, I'll, I'll promise I'll finish by saying this. Perhaps for you, you're in here. And the reason why you don't like church, the reason why you don't like God, the reason you don't like Jesus is because you see people who go by the name of God who call themselves Christ followers, who call themselves Christians, and who you know there's easy, practical things that they could do different to look more like Jesus, but you see a group of people who call themselves Christ followers who do not look like Christ, and so it drives you away from the idea of Jesus himself. Let me just, let me just ask this question. How much differently would you think about God? How much differently would you think about church? How much differently would you think about perhaps Jesus himself if you saw the people of God in very practical ways living and looking like the people of God? So what has God called you to do? And what's perhaps the practical step that you've been avoiding to living into the calling of God on your life? For the wall, the ministry, the obedience, the life that he's called you to build, 